910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. Be sure to check out our other resources, including blogs, posts, and our two award-winning books, No Half Truths Allowed and The Bible Blueprint. You can find everything on our website, Proverbs910Ministries.com, including information on our new book, The Final Exodus, Deciphering the Book of Revelation, due out September 1st. You can even contact us straight from the website if you have any questions, comments, or would like to inquire about us speaking at your next women's event. Welcome back. We're glad you're joining us today for the final episode of The Truth Will Set You Free. Today, we're diving into one of the most popular sections of the Bible, one that's had books written about it, Bible studies done about it, and even some pretty popular memes that have been shared on social media about it. It has to do with spiritual warfare because we are at war and it takes place in our daily lives, whether we're at work or at home or at school and maybe even online. Yeah, and some of those books and Bible studies and maybe even some of the memes are really good, but not all of them are. This really popular passage of the Bible, the armor of God that we see at the end of Ephesians 6, has often been wrenched away from the rest of the teaching of Ephesians. It's been taken out of context, and it's been taught in ways that have led Christians to come up with some pretty strange ideas. So today, we're going to start by taking out the trash of the false teaching of this passage, and then we'll replace it with biblical truth. Chris, a Christian's armor is undergirded by communication with our Heavenly Father, as we're going to see in a bit. But some Christians do a lot of talking to someone else as well, someone they have no business talking to. So you want to elaborate on that? I would love to elaborate on that. Romans 12, 12 tells us to be in constant prayer. Unfortunately, as you said, not just some, but many, many Christians spend time communicating with the devil instead of God. And I don't think that verse meant communication and prayer to anybody. It means to God. When I say they're communicating with the devil on a regular basis, daily and many times a day, What I mean is that they have this regular ongoing dialogue throughout their day with Satan. And that's time they could be used to talk to God. It's a very popular thing. It's a trend that's taught by teachers like Joyce Myers, John Gray, and others. And I'll give you an example here. I heard John Gray in a sermon. He was telling a large congregation a story about their family being in danger when their car stopped in the middle of a busy highway and how God protected them. Then he started yelling from the stage, I'm letting you know, devil, that you can't have me. And then he went on to tell the audience, tell the devil, you can't have my family. You can't have my business and all kinds of stuff like that. So, Rose, what do you think about that? Well. First of all, there's only one reason he can't have you, and that's if God has already claimed you. If he hasn't, he's got you. And, you know, Chris, I've seen memes like this. It says, be the kind of woman that when you get up in the morning, Satan says, oh, shoot, she's up. You know, I hate that. I hate that one. Making it sound like we can actually fight against Satan, that we have any chance, and that our battle is with Satan directly, and that Satan's battle is with us directly. And neither of those things are true. But you're right. Talking to Satan has been made really popular, especially with movies like War Room. 
And in that movie, Priscilla Shire, who I think was a writer or co-writer of it, but she's the main character. And she's taught by an elderly woman to take her problems to God and fight her spiritual battles on her knees. That's all good stuff. But then in the movie, Priscilla Schreier, her character starts to speak out and rebuke the devil. And if you've seen the movie, you can't forget this scene because it's so ridiculous. She's walking through her house, talking out loud, shouting to the devil, this is not your house. You do not belong here. And she's rebuking him. It's just really nonsensical. And we're going to see why in a minute. But, you know, another thing Christians throw out there, and it reminds me of this, is they say, I rebuke you, Satan. But the truth of the matter is that none of that is ever prescribed in Scripture. And you have to think that Satan laughs when a person says, I rebuke you, because we have no power against them. While Jesus walked the earth, he spoke Scripture to Satan. But even speaking Scripture directly to Satan is not prescriptive in Scripture. Jesus can do whatever he wants. For us, we fight back with the word of God, but it's for ourselves. We don't speak it directly to Satan. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. A Christian's beliefs and practices should come from scripture. There is nowhere in scripture where believers are talking to Satan and giving him commands. And there's nowhere that they're rebuking him either. In fact, according to Jude 9, and we've used this line before, the angels don't even rebuke Satan. They leave it to the Lord. The verse says, but Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And in addition to it not being prescriptive for us, we have to remember that Satan is not omnipresent. Obviously, then, neither are the fallen angels, the demons. They can only be at one place at a time. So the odds that you are being attacked directly by Satan himself is pretty minuscule. He's probably attacking somebody like George Soros. He's very comfortable there. Well, yeah, he's probably not attacking him. He's probably just whispering in his ear. But we have to keep these things in mind because... I don't know where this quote came from, but this is true. Effective spiritual warfare should be God-centered, not devil-centered. That is a great quote. I would love to know who said that. Yes. And that is so true. James 4, 7 teaches where to submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. And resist the devil means just don't give in to any of his ways or encouragements or anything. Doesn't mean fight him. And Chris, while we're on the subject, let's talk about other ways of fighting spiritual warfare that's taught that's wrong. And some of these might sting a bit if you've been taught this stuff about what it means to fight Satan, but hang in there because we all need to be open and teachable. We need to be open to correction by scripture. Well, just like talking to Satan, there are people who think fighting spiritual warfare means fighting directly against demons, even to the point of trying to find out their names. One of the most popular ways of doing this is to, quote unquote, bind Satan. This doesn't mean that people are praying that God's going to work somehow and bind Satan. These people are openly giving direct commands to Satan, saying things like, I bind you, Satan, meaning that, you know, you're not going to have influence over us, what they mean when they say, I bind you, Satan. You're not going to have influence over this event. I'm going to bind you to not have any influence over this unsaved person so that they hear the gospel and believe. 
I'm going to bind you, Satan, that you have to stay out of this building. I'm going to bind you away from my home or whatever. It can be lots of different things like that. So Rose, cannibal laver, gives Satan and his demons commands that they must follow. Well, Vody Bacham did a sermon and he mentioned this. It was very funny. He said, look, there's churches out there who are saying, we've bound Satan. We have binded Satan. He's like, can you let the rest of us know? Because it's helpful to know if you have him bound so we don't have to worry about him. And if you got him bound, why are you letting him go? <laughs> I love Vody. And it's a great point because if one church has already bound him or one person's already bound Satan, the rest of us don't even need to say it or think about it. And why are they letting him go? <laughs> Absolutely. That's right. That's a really good question. And obviously, Vody is doing what we kind of say all the time, follow it till it's logical conclusion. Yes. So, And then if it's not true, it will just fall apart. And the only one who can bind Satan from letting someone hear the gospel is the Holy Spirit. And that's what, yep. he does. That's what God does. So, Yep. God's but, work, not ours. That's right. Imagine that. God does it, not us. But this wrong idea comes from a few verses that are taken out of context. First, Matthew 12, 29, where Jesus healed the demon-possessed man. Jesus was telling the Pharisees that he was the Messiah, telling them he was not getting his power from Satan. And the other verses people get this idea from are Matthew 16, 9 and 18, 18, about binding and loosing. These two verses have to do with doctrinal things in the church and church discipline. And the verse that we said about Jesus saying his power doesn't come from Satan is because they were accusing him of that. They were saying your power is coming from Satan, and he was making a point. But none of these verses say anything about that people or churches or whatever can bind Satan on anything having to do with spiritual warfare. No, those verses don't have anything to do with spiritual warfare at all. So this is taking scripture out of context, which we say over and over again is bad. And it leads to false teaching. Like you said, Rose, if that verse meant that humans could bind Satan, then what Vody Bauckham said is very true. We don't have to worry about it because somebody's already done it. And then why are you loosening him? That why do we question. need Jesus? That's exactly right. You know, another wrong way of doing spiritual warfare is by praying what's called a hedge of thorns around people, places, buildings, etc., that Satan and his demons cannot pass through because it's too thorny. Now, I'm sorry if I'm kind of making fun of this, but it is really crazy. And this is based on Hosea 22.6, again, taken out of context. That's a passage about God hedging the narrow path of obedience with pain and difficulty so that if his people veer off the narrow path, they're going to want to get back on it the path of righteousness, which we know is the narrow path. So that has absolutely nothing to do with hedging in Satan and his demons. And they, they're they not omnipresent, but they are supernatural. So I'm thinking a hedge of thorns is not going to stop them anyway. Yeah, it's crazy. It is. And in addition, people will also incorrectly use Job to support this idea because Satan mentions that God put a hedge around Job. And again, this is totally taken out of context, and the meaning is totally changed. And again, it's God putting a hedge anyway. So, yeah, and it's just amazing how wrong this teaching is and how much they've totally changed the meaning of those two passages they take that from. It's Absolutely. Like it 
it's a total change of meaning. Like it's not just a little change. It's a total change. That's right. Scripture. I mean, so, if you want to argue that God can and does put a hedge around people to protect them against Satan, I'm not going to disagree with that, but it has not nothing either. to do with us. Yeah. We're not the ones doing it again. It's God doing it. And it's all happening in the spiritual realm. It's not happening here. Job had no idea that happened. No. And, you know, nobody prayed a hedge around Job. No. Ah, no, his friends anyway. certainly didn't. No. <laughs> no, they certainly did not. All right. So there's another very popular spiritual warfare teaching in the evangelical church, and that's called spiritual mapping. And that idea is that you can map out locations where Satan and the demons have real strongholds. And then teams of people will go into that city or country or wherever they deem that this stronghold is, and they'll rebuke, bind, they'll exercise people, they'll plead the blood of Jesus, they'll march around town, and they do all these other things in order to break the stronghold. Along with that, some teach that the people going in to do the spiritual battle in those areas have to find out again the names of demons. And they say that people can do this because the Holy Spirit will give them a special revelation. That's the only way you could possibly find out a demon's name is what they say. The only scriptural thing these people do is pray. And there's a ton of time and energy spent on all the other stuff I mentioned. A lot of energy and time. Yeah. And you wonder if they think this is true, why can't the people in that area do all this? Why do they have to come from outside? Right. Chris, part of the problem is that Christians think they're doing good things for the kingdom. And look, we're not arguing that a lot of times this stuff is well-intentioned, that it's Christians with, you know, good hearts who think they're furthering the kingdom of God, but they're not. They're not because they're neglecting the things that actually further the kingdom of God and the things that were commanded to do by God. This idea of mapping geographical strongholds comes from Daniel 10, 13. And that's where Daniel was visited by an angel. And in the passage, we get a glimpse of a spiritual warfare going on in the spiritual realm. And there was a demon or an evil spirit assigned to Persia and to Greece. So does that happen today? It's quite possibly can. But here's the thing. Number one, Daniel had no part of it. The angel was telling Daniel that it was going on. And it was only because he told Daniel. Again, this all happens in the spiritual realm. We have no knowledge of it. So we're not supposed to have knowledge of it. Believers are not told to do any of the things that spiritual mappers are doing. There's no precedent for it in scripture. And gosh, I can't say this enough, but this is what happens when you rip one verse out of scripture. You come up with this stuff. And what yep. we said here is only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the lengths that spiritual mappers go. And again, they're wasting time when they should be putting time into the real things that further the kingdom of God. You know, most of the wrong teaching that we've mentioned comes from the fact that people take Ephesians 1 verse 3, that Christians have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and Ephesians 2 verse 6, that Christians are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, and then they put themselves in the place of Christ, saying, because Jesus has authority over everything, then so do I. This is the ultimate in Jesus. 
which means studying scripture to put yourself into it and making it about you instead of Jesus. We want to acknowledge here that Jesus did give the apostles and 72 disciples the authority to cast out demons in his name, and those demons obeyed them according to Luke 10, verse 17. But that was at that time when the early church was just getting started, and Jesus gave them direct authority. All of those accounts are in the Gospels and the book of Acts. Casting out demons is not mentioned after that. What the apostles and the disciples are doing after that time is teaching, calling people to repentance, baptizing, teaching, and so on. That's right. And that is an important point, that that was just a gift for that first time to get the church and the gospel going. In Acts 19, some Jewish exorcists, the seven sons of Sceva, tried to cast out demons in Jesus's name. And here's what scripture says. They say to the demons, I implore you and solemnly command you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, that doesn't sound much different than what we've been talking about people doing today. No. But the evil spirit answers them, and I'm going to quote scripture again. I know and recognize and acknowledge Jesus, and I know about Paul, but as for you, who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit indwelling in him, leapt on this guy trying to exercise him, stripped them naked, and wounded them. So thinking you have the same authority and power as Jesus is not only wrong, it's dangerous, and it's heresy. Okay, so that's enough about that. But Chris, let's mention one more, and again, this one might sting a bit, and that's pleading the blood of Jesus. Many people, even some I've known, plead the blood of Jesus in prayer, and they believe that somehow they're claiming the power of Jesus over pretty much any and every problem by saying those words. Rose, I've heard it a lot too. And when I've heard it used, it's always like the words are somehow kind of magical, and they probably aren't even thinking that way. But it it seems like somehow praying them will make whatever problem you have go away. I'm pleading the blood of Jesus over this problem as if that's going to do something. Again, nobody in the Bible did that. Nobody. It's not a biblical practice. Jesus's blood shed on the cross is what they're talking about. But Jesus's blood was shed to cover our sin. So using those words in prayer as if it's some magical fix to our problems is wrong. It is. And I agree with you, Chris. I think most people doing it, again, are doing it with good intentions. But it's not just good to be sincere. We have to be right, too. Absolutely. You know, Charles Spurgeon said, you can sincerely drink poison and you'll still die. Right. So, And you can sincerely believe whatever you want and still end up in hell. That's right. So you, it's important to get this right. And the problem with this is like, it's a magical charm that it's being used as. And, you know, that's where it starts getting in dangerous territory. Yeah. Yeah. These examples are just some of the wrong ways spiritual warfare is done in the evangelical church today by a lot of Christians. Okay. So we've spent enough time taking out the trash of false teaching Let's look at what's important, and that's the biblical truth about what the armor of God is that we're given and how we truly fight spiritual warfare. 
we should probably start by reading the passage in Ephesians. All right. Well, I'll read it. Ephesians 6 verses 10 to 20 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Okay, so Paul starts this last part of Ephesians with the word finally, or in conclusion. So that means we can't take this section and wrench it away from the rest of the letter to Ephesus, and we certainly can't wrench it away from the rest of scripture. We need to read it in light of the rest of the book of Ephesians and in light of the rest of the Bible. So the first thing Paul tells us is to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Back in Ephesians chapter 1 in verses 17 to 22, Paul said he was praying that the Ephesus church would, through the work of the Holy Spirit, be given wisdom and knowledge so that they would know and understand God's might and power and would be assured of Jesus's rule and authority over everything, including all other rulers and powers. Right. And for the Ephesus church, that would give them confidence that Christ rules over all the evil powers that many of them had dabbled in Remember, they threw out a bunch of books having to do with magic and other occult practices, and they burned them in the square. So this would give them confidence, like I said, that Christ rules over all those evil powers they were dabbling in. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Going back, you have to go back to the book of Ephesians, what I said earlier. So next, Paul tells us who we're fighting. The Christians back then, as well as Christians now, are at war against rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers who rule over darkness. In other words, Satan and the demons. Satan and the demons are going to try to get Christ's church to sin and go astray and forsake him and forsake his word. Yeah. That's how they fight. And that's what we're fighting against, our own temptations and stuff. We need to put on the whole armor of God that he's given us to use to fight our sin. And I just want to say this. Take notice here that it says whole armor. We need the whole armor in order to stand our ground. If we're not standing firm, we're going to run. And guess what? There is no armor on our back. That is absolutely right. And Chris, to what you said, proof that Satan and the demons just want to get us away from Jesus 
you know, some of us will face real persecution and real dark stuff, but the vast majority of Christians, the biggest way Satan and his demons get at us is just to distract us, distract us from Jesus, distract us from God, distract us from our Bible. That's their main weapon. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah, they're just as happy to distract us and, you know, have us not even thinking about God as they are for us to sin. That's right. And that's why we need to stand firm biblically, as we're going to see, because we're not, we don't need to declare and rebuke them because we don't even know they're doing it. They're just distracting us. Yep. And they're using themselves as part of the distraction. That's right. So to fight this from minor distractions from God's word and from Jesus to the real dark stuff, we need the whole armor of God. For instance, it's not enough to have faith but then neglect reading and studying the Bible. We can't say we understand we have Christ's righteousness, so that gives us liberty to live any way we want. That's a very misunderstanding. If we're neglecting any part of the full armor of God, we could find ourselves in trouble. In addition, we got to look out for our brothers and sisters. Do we know the truth, but we're willing to let other people go on believing false teachings or worse, heresy? just so we don't make waves. That goes against what Paul taught in Ephesians in chapter four. Yeah, it certainly does. We take up this armor of God so that we have the ability to withstand that evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul said in Ephesians 5.15 that the days were evil. Therefore, we should walk our walk wisely, which means righteously, knowing the will of God, which means surprise, surprise, I'm going to say this, knowing scripture. The whole church age, this time between Jesus's ascension and his second coming is what Paul is talking about when he's talking about these evil days. Standing firm is what we're to do. Standing firm is conquering and being victorious over the enemy. Jesus has already won the battle for us. And so we're victorious when we stand our ground by living righteously. It means not sinning when we're tempted. It means we're not going to cave to peer pressure. It means that we don't give in, even if it means that our very lives are at stake. And then he's talking to a whole church here, not just individuals. Churches victoriously stand their ground when they're awake and alert against the enemy and they're following God's commands. But if they're woke and they're caving to society, they're not standing. No, they're not. Being woke is not the same as being awake by any means. Standing firm against sin is what Jesus warns the churches about in the book of Revelation. The Ephesus church was one of those seven churches. Jesus says to them, and I'm quoting from Revelation 2, 7, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus has broken the power of sin for us. If we're a believer, sin no longer has that power. And if you really want to get back at Satan and his demons, don't sin. Yeah. Because they hate that. That's exactly right. Now we need to act like sin doesn't have that power over us. And again, we're not going to get this perfect. We sin because we're sinners. The admonishment to stand firm against sin isn't something any Christian should take lightly. And again, we're not going to get this right while we're on earth because we're still sinners. But we shouldn't take it lightly as individuals, and we certainly shouldn't take it lightly as a church. And this armor of God that we're given is meant to help us in this fight. 
It's meant to help us in our fight against sin and to stand firm. The armor in this passage is God's armor from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 16 and 17. And he applies it to believers. It's just like the fruit of the spirit. It's something we're given when we become a believer. Every single bit of it is given to us by God. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation. There was nothing, absolutely nothing we could have done to produce any of it ourselves. No, we couldn't. It's nothing you can come up with on your own. It is a God-given gift to you. Your salvation is a gift to you. Ephesians 1 taught us that. We were chosen before the foundation of the world. You know, it was a gift from God, totally God's work, not ours. And the first piece of armor that Paul mentions is a belt of truth. We're to stand firm with the belt of truth around our waist. Going back to Ephesians 1, we see all the blessings of who we are. The indicatives that you and I have talked about throughout this entire series, Rose. Yeah. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing, and I'm just going to rattle off some of them that we talked about. We were chosen before the foundation of the world, predestined, adopted as sons and daughters, accepted through Christ, redeemed by his blood, forgiven of our sins, given wisdom and understanding. We have an inheritance. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit so that we cannot lose our salvation. And that inheritance is a guaranteed one. We cannot lose it. And Overarchingly, overall, from chapter one, we have that understanding of the sovereignty of God in our salvation. That is vital. Understanding the sovereignty of God is always vital. This is so vital. We need to wrap all those truths that I just mentioned and all the truths found within scripture around us like a belt. And we need to believe all of it wholeheartedly without doubting. Absolutely. And I just want to say a lot of the false teachings we talked about and a lot that we're going to talk about in the future series is grounded that people don't understand the sovereignty of God. Yep, it's crucial. It is crucial. The belt that you mentioned, the belt of truth, as we're going to see in a minute, the belt on a Roman soldier held everything else in place. They would tuck their clothes into it to hold them up and it held their sword, which as we're going to see in a minute is representative of the word of God. But without a belt, you wouldn't be able to do much of anything because it's hard to move around when you're weaponless and everything's falling down. The imagery of tucking your clothes in your belt to be ready is used all over scripture. The terms gird up your loins, brace yourself, or get ready is how it's put in some verses. In 2 Kings 4.29, the prophet Elisha told Gehazi to tuck his cloak in his belt and then gave him instructions what to do on his journey. Through Moses, the Lord told the Israelites to eat their last meal in Egypt with your cloak tucked in your belt. Why was that? Because they were leaving town. They were getting out of Egypt. That was the first exodus. They needed to be ready to go. Without having your belt, you're not going to be able to do what God has for you to do. In this case, you're not going to be able to stand your ground by living righteously and glorifying God you're not going to be able to help fellow Christians either. Get to know scripture if you don't know it already. I know we say that over and over, but understand this armor of God at the very center holding everything up is the belt of truth. That's why we say it over and over. That's why scripture tells us over and over to read our Bibles. 
Yeah, I know we sound like broken records, but because of our sinful nature, our natural inclination would be to not study it. And like you said, Rose, without that belt of truth, we are in trouble. It holds everything else in place. That's right. So moving on, the next piece of armor is the breastplate. We stand with the breastplate of Christ's righteousness, knowing that we're reconciled to God because of that, not anything that we've done. Our righteousness would never be good enough to protect us. We need Christ's righteousness, and that's why he clothes us in it. The breastplate of a Roman soldier would slip if the belt wasn't securely fastened on. Now, Christ's righteousness will never slip off of us, and we can never lose our salvation. However, there is a component of righteousness that will be affected if we let the belt of truth slip from our waist, and that's our sanctification. The Holy Spirit changes us through the word so that we can work on mortifying our sin and living righteous lives to become more Christ-like. Understanding scripture correctly is extremely important in doing this. That's why the belt holds the breastplate up. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 4.11 that God gave the church pastors and teachers to prepare us for works of service that God prepared in advance for us to do. Christ wants his church mature in their thinking so that they won't succumb to false teaching and because we're to live righteously as children of light and so that we can expose fruitless deeds of darkness. And both of those are from Ephesians in chapter five. That's right. Absolutely right. And next, Paul tells us to stand firmly in our shoes, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. It's the gospel that brings reconciliation to God. Nothing else can bring peace between God and man. Morality is just dead works. There's no saving power in just being a moral person. There's no power in morality at all. Eventually, if you're a moral person with enough pressure, you're going to cave to immorality because you have no real reason not to. But a Christian has gospel shoes, and those gospel shoes make him fit for heaven. He can stand firm without caving, and he can persevere all the way to the end because God gave him those gospel shoes of peace. Just like the Israelites were to eat their last meal in Egypt with their tunic tucked in, like you mentioned, Rose, they were also to have their sandals on and be ready to leave. With our gospel shoes on our feet, we are ready to leave, to go to heaven, and we will right before the last trumpet blows. And that's going to be the final exodus. And when that happens, if you don't have those shoes on, it won't matter how moral your friends and family think you were, because humanistic values and morality will never ever save you from the wrath of God. That's right. And I like that term, the final exodus. Someone should use it for a book title. Yeah, somebody <laughs> should. And in fact, somebody did. And it's coming out <laughs> September 1st. That's <laughs> hey, a shameless plug. It is a shameless plug, but we got to get it in there. Yeah. Now, some say the shoes of the gospel are just like you said, Chris, it's about the peace between us and God that we have now because of the gospel. While others say that it's also about taking the gospel to others because we have the shoes on. We know that we're to take the gospel to others. In fact, we're commanded to do that. And in light of the fact that in the book of Revelation, 
the gospel is being spread right up until the last minute, that's absolutely what we should do. So it could be both. Right. It could be. And it's really not, I don't think, a point of argument because we know where to do it right till the last minute. So next, Paul tells us we're to take up the shield of faith so that we can quench the flaming darts of the enemy. In other words, the shield of faith, we are saved. We can have total faith in the work that Jesus did on the cross when he died in our place. And we should use our faith to put out the flaming darts of condemnation when the devil reminds us of our sin. You know, when we sin, we can start to despair because of it. And we need to remember all those Ephesians 1 blessings. And because so many Christians struggle with condemnation, I just want to read two more scriptures about not feeling condemnation because Christ already paid for that. Romans 8.1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the second verse I want to say is Colossians 2.13 to 15. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So no condemnation. Put those flaming arrows of condemnation out with your shield of faith. That's right. We're putting on this armor so that we can resist all the schemes of the devil. Condemnation isn't the only fiery dart the devil throws at us. We named others, some others earlier. He also has the darts of temptation that we can also extinguish with our faith. James 4, 7 says, submit yourself, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. We know we said that earlier, but that's an important verse. Faith resists the devil. Standing firm in truth resists the devil. Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's the end of scripture. So you see how having the belt of truth works. Yeah. But if you didn't know these scriptures or you had no idea they were there, how would you stand? That's right. That is absolutely right. We'll do one more. James 1 verses 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Sounds like the more we stand firm, the better we're going to get at it. Amen to that. That's That's a blessing right there. That's good news and bad news. Yes, it is. It absolutely is. All right. So next we have the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is, as you said earlier, the word of God. The helmet of salvation is something that we're to take up. So I want you to stop for a minute and think back to English class for a moment, if you can remember that far back, and remember your teaching about the verb tenses. When it comes to salvation, the Bible speaks of being saved in three tenses. Past tense, we have been saved, as it says in 2 Timothy 1.9, where it talks about God who saved us. So that's the past tense. 
And we have been saved because we've had our sins forgiven. But then there's the present tense of salvation. Second Corinthians 2.15 talks about believers as those who are being saved. We are being saved more and more as we're sanctified and grow in our salvation and as we persevere in it. And then there's the third tense. There's a sense in which our salvation is a future event that happens when Christ returns, like it talks about in Romans 5.10, which says we shall be saved. So Rose, what do these verb tenses of being saved have to do with us taking up the helmet of salvation? Well, we take up the helmet of salvation, present tense, and continue the process of working out our salvation with fear and trembling, which we find in Philippians 2.12. We do it by, guess what? <laughs> Studying the word know. of God. <laughs> it's not sitting on the beach or just sitting by the pool. It'd be a lot easier if it was, but no, it's studying the word of God. Everything begins and ends with the word of God. Yep. It's how we have our minds renewed by it, as we saw over and over again with Romans 12 too. It's how we stand firm in our faith. It's how we persevere through whatever comes our way. We can do it because we have hope, believing and trusting that the battle has already been won and our inheritance is already guaranteed, again, from Ephesians 1.18. We have to have hope. We have to have hope. That's right. And it's the hope of things already past tense that, have, that are done and guaranteed that can give us hope in the present and hope for the future. What kind of soldier can fight if he doesn't believe in victory? How could anyone fight without any hope? When doubts creep into our minds, we have to push them away. There's story after story how George Washington boosted up the patriots who were barefoot and starving and freezing by reading them the Declaration of Independence and boosting their morale that they could win this war. And they didn't even know that for sure. We already know that our war is won. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And last but certainly not least, we have the sword of the spirit, which is our weapon. That is the word of God. You have to know the word. The people in Ephesus were at risk at believing false teachers, and we can be too. We don't speak that word out loud to the devil, but we do have it tucked in our brain so that we can remember it when we need it. And we're not saying that you have to memorize it, but you have to have a solid understanding of it. And you have to know what it says about how to live. And if you're reading and studying, which it should be, then the Holy Spirit's going to be using it to change your thinking to line up with scripture. You have to do that. You have to know the word. If you read the book of Revelation, you'll see that the world is persecuting the church. It was happening then. It's been happening throughout history. And it's happening now more and more, in fact. Many throughout history have suffered persecution. And many are today. It's what we all may be up against someday, maybe sooner than we think. And the whole point of this armor is to help us to be able to stand even against the harshest persecution and whatever else God has ordained for our life without caving to sin. That's how they've done it throughout history. They were able to stand firm because they stood firm in this armor of God. 
And as we know from reading and studying Revelation, that's what Jesus says to the sinful churches. Stop sinning and stand firm for him. They're to stop sinning regardless of what they have to endure. He never tells them he's going to turn down the persecution. He tells them stop sinning in it. Yep, he does. And the two churches that he addresses that aren't steeped in sin, they're to persevere through whatever comes their way because none of it comes outside of God's sovereign providential hand. And sometimes that's a hard pill to swallow. It is a hard pill to swallow, but those are the things that he says to those seven churches, which is meant for all the churches. Michelle Leslie had a post about it the other day. She had some post, I think it said something to the effect of, uh, it was on Twitter, something like, no matter what situation you are in, it doesn't allow you to sin. Like there's nothing, no situation that you're in that God says, yeah, it's okay to go ahead and sin. That's right. So Paul continues on saying that we're to pray at all times with prayer and supplication for all the saints. That's what Paul mentions doing for this local congregation in Ephesians 1.16. Fellowship with our Heavenly Father, like we said, undergirds this armor. So pray for yourself and for your brothers and sisters who are in this fight with you because we need each other. Pray big. Pray for the types of things that Paul prays for, eternal things more than temporal things. Pray that God will help you to want to read and study and then he'll give you knowledge as you do it. Yeah, absolutely. J.C. Ryle said, if you want to see a man's heart, see what he prays for. If you want to see what he thinks about God, see what he prays for. And we aren't told to stand firm in this fight against the enemy for no reason. Remember, Ephesians 3 said that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What makes the manifold wisdom of God visible to the watching world and the heavenly realms is living holy lives, shining light and exposing the darkness that's in the world. It's living kingdom life as brothers and sisters while we're still here on earth. In light of all that God has done for us and who we are in him, the indicatives, we should live the kind of life that glorifies God by living out the imperatives. His manifold wisdom is being made known through us. That's an awesome responsibility that we're given. Yep. The heavenly angels are watching. Did you ever think about that? That they're watching us to see what we do? They're praising God in heaven over every sinner who repents, according to Luke 15, 10. In contrast, Satan and his demons are watching too, but they're getting angry at every sinner who repents. Yeah, Satan hates it when we obey God. He wants the church to just turn their back on him. Be distracted. Yeah, or just be distracted. I love what the spirit of the Reformation Study Bible says about the cumulative effect of putting on the full armor of God and standing firm. And I'm going to quote it here. It is a picture of people who are so caught up in the victory already won for them in Jesus's conquest of the forces of darkness that they are immovable in the face of threats against God's vision to establish a community that reflects his loving and holy character. Amen to that. It won't always be pretty. It certainly won't always be easy. In fact, it might get downright complicated and bloody 
maybe literally. But if we truly remember all the blessings that are indicative of who we are, that Paul pointed out in chapter one of Ephesians, hopefully it will help us stand firm. Paul ends his letter to Ephesus with these words. Peace be to the brothers and the loved with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And we hope you'll join us next week for our new series, Real Truth About Real Stuff, False Teaching. We're going to dive into topics like the dangerous practice of deconstructing your faith, uh, spiritual formation teaching, and some well-known and lesser-known cults that claim Christianity, and at least one very popular organization that falls into that category too. So you're going to want to join us. Have a blessed day, everybody. 